0: Rheumatology Questions in Internal Medicine Essentials, a medical knowledge self-assessment program mix app for students. This is Paul Aronowitz. I'll be your host on these podcasts. And it has been my aspiration for some time uh, to essentially record all the questions in the Internal Medicine Essentials book and have a discussion Both of the correct and incorrect answers, so that you hopefully will be able to listen to this podcast while you're exercising or driving or walking to work. Ideally, you'll be walking to work, but one never knows these days. So, this is item one. A 52 year old man is evaluated for a three month history of fatigue and pain of the hands and knees. The pain has progressively worsened and is accompanied by one hour of morning stiffness. He takes ibuprofen as needed, which provides minimal pain relief. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. Synovitis of the proximal interphalangeal joints, elbows, left knee, and ankles is noted. Radiographs of the hands and knees are normal. Aspiration of the left knee reveals a synovial fluid leukocyte count of 12,000 microliters. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Fibromyalgia B. Osteoarthritis C. Polymyalgia rheumatica or D. Rheumatoid arthritis I will give you a moment to contemplate the answer to that question, and then I will give you the answer uh, along with a brief discussion of that answer. By the way, you'll notice that I have started with rheumatology rather than one of the other areas, and this is because it is the last section in the Internal Medicine Essentials. I am starting from the back and working my way to the front just to be different. So the answer uh, to this particular question is D, and that is... um, Rheumatoid arthritis. This would be considered a fairly essential thing for you to know for both the shelf exam as well as for the USMLE step two exam. So, the educational objective of this question is to distinguish between inflammatory and non inflammatory arthritis. So, the presence of the symmetric swelling of the proximal interphalangeal joints, elbows, and ankles in this patient is strongly suggested of an inflammatory type of arthritis, which in this case would most likely be rheumatoid arthritis because of the locations. Rheumatoid arthritis can affect most joints, but the lumbar spine, thoracic spine, and distal interphalangeal joints are spared. Rheumatoid arthritis typically results in prolonged morning stiffness and inflammatory joint fluid as noted in this patient. Um, So, the keywords in this question you're going to be hearing a lot from me about keywords or neurocalisthenics these are basically the things in the history that help key you into what the right answer is to the question and will also help you in real life in terms of diagnosing diseases so it's a fifty two-year-old man so he's a middle-aged male and he has one hour of morning stiffness which is outside the norm for somebody who just has a little bit of osteoarthritis. The other uh, key in here are proximal interphalangeal joints, i.e. those are affected by the synovitis, and when you're hearing proximal interphalangeal joints, you should really be thinking about rheumatoid arthritis. And then in terms of distinguishing this from a non-inflammatory type of Arthritis. The synovial fluid leukocyte count is 12,000, which is uh, more than uh, um, 10,000. So uh, we would consider that an inflammatory type of arthritis. The other answer is just to uh, briefly explain. Fibromyalgia is characterized by widespread musculoskeletal pain for at least three months and is more common in women. This is a male patient in this case. The physical examination in patients with fibromyalgia usually is normal except for widespread pain and tenderness. Um, Active synovitis would not be consistent with the diagnosis of fibromyalgia. So osteoarthritis can affect the hips, knees, lumbar, and cervical spine and proximal and distal interphalangeal joints, but involvement is typically asymmetric and the pain does not begin in multiple joints abruptly and simultaneously as noted in this patient. Also, the, I would argue that the morning stiffness in this case is not consistent with osteoarthritis. Usually that gets better quickly when someone gets up and it gets worse through the day uh, due to the wear and tear on the joints polymyalgia rheumatica is characterized by aching in the shoulders, so think of polymyalgia as part of that achiness in the shoulders, the neck, and the hip girdle region, as well as fatigue and malaise that develop over weeks to months. This patient's symptoms and the objective findings of synovitis are not consistent with polymyalgia rheumatica. However, you do need to know about polymyalgia rheumatica for both the shelf exam as well as for the uh, USMLE exam. You will get asked about those. So the key point in this question, just to sum up, is that morning stiffness lasting more than one hour and a synovial fluid leukocyte count greater than 5,000, I believe I said 10,000 earlier, I misspoke, are associated with inflammatory arthritis. And again, just to review, the key words in this were the one hour of morning stiffness and the proximal interphalangeal joint involvement as well as an inflammatory component of synovial fluid leukocyte count being greater than 12,000. Item number two, a 65-year-old man is evaluated <clears throat> for a three-week history of non-radiating left hip pain that worsens with walking or lying on his left side. He reports no locking symptoms or paresthesia. His only medication is ibuprofen as needed, which provides partial pain relief. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. Full range of motion of the left hip is present. There is tenderness over the lateral aspect of the hip with direct palpation. Results of a straight leg raising test are normal and reflexes are normal. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Iliotibial band syndrome b lumbar radiculopathy c osteoarthritis of the hip or d trochanteric bursitis i'll give you a moment to consider that so the educational objective in this case is really to diagnose trochanteric bursitis so the correct answer is d Uh, this patient has trochanteric bursitis which is a common cause of lateral hip pain And I'll give you a little pearl, and that's that patients with intraarticular hip pain, such as from osteoarthritis or other disorders, usually indicate that they're having pain, they point to uh, to their groin area, not to the lateral hip. So in this case, the patient's having lateral hip pain, which is more characteristic of a bursitis type of issue. So the bursa is a connective tissue sac with a potential space that facilitates smooth movement of one tissue over another. And usually bursitis results when the bursa becomes inflamed, and that can either be from trauma or an overuse syndrome, or infected. And the examination typically reveals pain and tenderness over the greater trochanter, in the case of trochanteric bursitis. Patients describe pain when lying on their side or swinging their leg into a car. Although bursa may be near or over uh, a joint, it is important to differentiate pain arising from bursa and other non-joint structures from disorders within the joint. Uh, although patients may indicate that they believe they are having pain in the joint, non-articular pain is often worse with active range of motion and is localized away from the joint on palpation. So those are really the clues, and they love to ask about trochanteric bursitis, both on the American Board of Internal Medicine board exam, after residents fin- finish residency, as well as on shelf exams and USMLE-type things. Uh, so going over the incorrect answers, iliotibial band syndrome most commonly occurs in young athletes, usually runners or cyclists. This condition also can cause lateral hip pain. However, patients often describe pain that radiates down the outside of the leg. Patients with iliotibial band syndrome exhibit pain to palpation along the band down to the knee, which is not anywhere near where this patient has pain in this question. Stretching of the iliotibial band by adducting the knee often reproduces the pain in contrast patients with trochanteric bursitis have more localized pain on examination lumbar radiculopathy can cause pain localized to the lateral hip however the area is not generally tender and straight leg raising um, usually results in a positive sign lumbar radiculopathy can also result in paresthesia and weakness of the leg pain is often felt while sitting but is not generally exacerbated by walking so this pretty inconsistent presentation with lumbar radiculopathy. And in terms of uh, hip joint pathology, because you'll recall that uh, osteoarthritis of the hip was uh, choice C, uh, that often causes groin or gluteal muscle pain and passive range of motion elicits pain in these areas. So again, you'd be pointing uh, to the groin rather than the lateral hip. Patients often demonstrate guarding or reduced range of motion uh, with an intra-articular issue such as osteoarthritis um, or uh, frank synovitis. So, to summarize, the key point in this question is that trochanteric bursitis can be confirmed in patients in whom active hip abduction—remember, that's about abduction intensifies the pain, or in those in whom the examination reveals pain and tenderness over the bursa. So hopefully that's reasonably clear. Item number three, a 26-year-old man is hospitalized for a two-month history of daily spiking fever, diffuse joint pain, myalgia, intermittent rash, and a 9-kilogram weight loss, which is equivalent to 20 pounds. On physical examination, temperature is 38.4 degrees centigrade or 101.2 Fahrenheit, blood pressure 126 over 68 millimeters of mercury, pulse rate 92 per minute, and respiratory rate is 16 per minute. There are enlarged cervical lymph nodes. A salmon-colored rash is noted on the trunk and proximal extremities. Abdominal examination discloses hepatomegaly musculoskeletal examination reveals tenderness of the wrists knees and ankles without swelling there is decreased range of motion of the wrists laboratory studies reveal a hemoglobin of 9.8 grams per deciliter leukocyte count of twenty one thousand per microliter platelet count of five hundred and sixty thousand per microliter erythrocyte sedimentation rate of one hundred and two millimeters per hour an AST, aspartate aminotransferase level of 56 units per liter, an alanine aminotransferase, or ALT, level of 63 units per liter, and a ferritin markedly elevated at 5,250 nanograms per milliliter. Computed tomography of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis reveals diffuse lymphadenopathy. Bone marrow biopsy results are normal. Blood cultures are negative. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Adult onset still disease. B. Lymphoma. C. Parvovirus B19 infection. Or D. Systemic lupus erythematosus. So I'll give you a moment to contemplate the answer to that question. So in this case, the answer is A, which is adult onset still disease. So this patient uh, has some fairly classic things that you should be able to at least recognize in print because you won't see this disease very often. At least I haven't seen this disease very often. But the classic things include the fact that he has this uh, daily or quotidian fever. He has an effervescent salmon-colored rash, arthritis, and multi-system involvement. So diagnosis is based on the typical clinical presentation and exclusion of infection and malignancy, particularly leukemia and the lymphoma, which is why they did the bone marrow biopsy in this case. Laboratory abnormalities in patients with adult onset stills include leukocytosis, anemia, thrombocytosis, elevated ESR, elevated serum ferritin level, usually greater than 1,000 nanograms per milliliter and abnormal liver chemistry tests. Antinuclear antibody titer and rheumatoid factor typically are negative. So this patient has a fairly classic presentation. Just to sort of review the keywords or your neurocalisthenics for this question, uh, that you have a two-month history, which doesn't necessarily narrow things down, but the patient has daily spiking fever for that period of time. There's not a lot of things that actually do that. And he also has diffuse joint pain. Now the really key thing here is the intermittent rash, which is described as a salmon-colored rash on the trunk and proximal extremities. If you were to take away nothing else than this from this question, it's if you hear or see or read about a salmon-colored rash, think adult onset still disease. Uh, The patient has other things, but none of them are keywords that necessarily clue you into the diagnosis. In the laboratories, however, the ferritin is markedly elevated at 5,250, which is absolutely classic for adult-onset still disease, which is one of the few diseases on the list of things that causes a markedly elevated ferritin. And then the patient has adenopathy, but again, that could be lymphoma or other infectious-type processes. So, you have to be careful about generalizing about keywords there. So, uh, going over why the other answers are wrong. Um, so, so, regarding uh, choice uh, B, which was lymphoma, uh, lymphadenopathy and fever may suggest lymphoma, lymphoma uh, but the constellation of other signs and symptoms in this patient, as well as the negative bone marrow biopsy results, suggests adult onset stills. And also, the elevated serum ferritin levels are not associated with lymphoma or with leukemia, so keep that in mind, again, that there are not a lot of things that cause a markedly elevated ferritin like that. And then, uh, regarding parvovirus B19 as one of the wrong choices, uh, patients with Parvovirus B19 have arthritis and rash lasting days to weeks, uh, often after a flu-like illness. Spiking fevers, lymphadenopathy, and an elevated leukocyte count and serum ferritin level are not associated findings. So certainly uh, parvovirus B19, that would be the so-called slap-cheek fever. And usually in these questions, they're going to give you a history of exposure to children of uh, who are either in school or preschool um, which is where they would have picked up the parvovirus B19 and given it to the adult uh, who is now affected. And then uh, regarding the final uh, potential choice, which was systemic lupus erythematosus, fever, arthritis, and lymphadenopathy occur in patients with SLE, but the presence of elevated uh, rather than a decreased leukocyte and platelet counts and the markedly elevated serum ferritin level point toward a diagnosis of adult-onset still disease. And again, the effervescent salmon-colored rash also is not associated with SLE. You have other types of rashes, but not a salmon-colored uh, rash, as they describe here, and particularly one that comes and goes. In SLE, they're gonna give you a history of a rash that gets worse usually with sun exposure. So the key point here is adult-onset still disease is a systemic inflammatory disorder characterized by quotidian, otherwise known as daily fever an effervescent salmon-colored rash, arthritis, multi-system involvement, and markedly elevated serum ferritin levels. So if you can remember all those things, you will always get this question right. Question number four, a 31-year-old woman is evaluated for a four-week history of left anterior knee pain. The pain developed insidiously and has progressively worsened, especially with prolonged sitting and walking up and down stairs. There is no morning stiffness. The patient has no history of trauma. She is taking acetaminophen as needed for the pain. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. The pain is reproduced by applying pressure to the the surface of the patella with the knee in extension and moving the patella both laterally and medially. There is no effusion, swelling, or warmth. Range of motion of the knee is normal without crepitus or pain. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A, osteoarthritis of the knee, B, patellofemoral pain syndrome, C, anserine bursitis, or D, prepatellar bursitis? I'll give you a moment to contemplate the answer to that question. And yes, you are absolutely correct. The answer to this question is B, patellofemoral pain syndrome. Now, I think even if you knew nothing about the knee and had never examined the patient or seen this particular entity, you probably would have gotten this question right just because of the fact that they're describing a number of pertinent negatives along with a markedly positive, pertinent positive, which is pain with movement of the patella, and you could sort of surmise that patellofemoral pain syndrome was the most likely diagnosis and got this question right. So this patient has patellofemoral pain syndrome, which is the most common cause of knee pain in patients younger than age 45 years. So stuff that away under your hat, remember it. The most common cause of knee pain in patients younger than age 45 years is? That's right, patellofemoral pain syndrome patellofemoral pain syndrome is a clinical diagnosis and additional diagnostic testing such as radiography is not necessary patellofemoral pain syndrome is more common in women and is characterized by anterior knee pain that is made worse with prolonged sitting and with going up and down stairs the pain is reproduced by applying pressure to the patella with the knee in extension and moving the patella both medially and laterally I, that's called the patello-femoral compression test pretty nifty eh? so uh... going over the uh, uh... keywords in this particular one there's not a lot uh... here you can really take away um, i think the fact that they describe that there's no morning stiffness steers you away from a number of things um, uh... and then uh, again just the uh, applying pressure to the surface of the patello with the knee in extension, uh, is that uh, so-called patellofemoral compression test, which um, you should probably just know a little bit about. So regarding why the other answers are wrong, uh, answer A was osteoarthritis of the knee, Uh, and according to the American College of Rheumatology's clinical criteria, osteoarthritis of the knee can be diagnosed if knee pain is accompanied by at least three of the following features. You ready? age greater than 50 years, morning stiffness lasting less than 30 minutes, crepitus, bone tenderness, bone enlargement, and no palpable warmth. These criteria are 95% sensitive and 69% specific for the diagnosis of osteoarthritis, but have not been validated for use in clinical practice. Crepitus of the knee is common in patients with osteoarthritis between the patella and the femur. Passive range of motion of the knee often elicits pain at the extreme of flexion and extension. Palpation of the knee discloses only mild tenderness. The patient has no clinical evidence of knee osteoarthritis in this particular uh, test question. So, uh, answer C was pest, which is incorrect, is pes anserine bursitis. One of my favorite words to say in the medical uh, jargon. Pes anserine bursitis characteristically produces pain that is located near the anteromedial aspect of the proximal tibia. The anteromedial aspect of the proximal tibia. So on examination, tenderness is elicited at the level of the tibial tuberosity, which is approximately 3.8 centimeters below the level of the medial joint line. Swelling may be present at the insertion of the medial hamstring muscles. The patient's presentation is not consistent with pest answering bursitis. And finally, uh, prepatellar bursitis is also incorrect. Um, and that's usually, again, we talked about per- bursitis in one of the last questions. Uh, it's often caused by recurrent trauma, such as repeated kneeling, which is so-called housemaid's knee, but can also be caused by infection or even by uh, crystal-induced uh, things like gout. Although the pain is located anterior, examination reveals swelling, tenderness to palpation, which is usually localized near the lower pole of the patella and erythema may be present as uh, as well uh, all of which are lacking in this uh, patient in this case so to summarize the key point in this test question is that patellofemoral pain syndrome is more common in women and is characterized by anterior knee pain that is made worse with prolonged sitting and with going up and down stairs And just as a refresher, let me ask you, what is the most common cause of knee pain in patients younger than age 45 years? Yes, that's correct. It's the patellofemoral pain syndrome. Question number five. A 35-year-old woman is evaluated for a one-week history of right knee pain that began when she jumped from a four-foot height and twisted her knee. At the time, she felt a popping sensation. Her knee became swollen over the next several hours. She has continued to have moderate pain, particularly when walking up or down stairs. There is no locking or giving way of the knee. She reports no previous knee surgery. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. The right knee has a minimal effusion. There is full range of motion the medial aspect of the joint line is tender to palpation. Maximally flexing the hip and knee and applying abduction, abduction, which is valgus force, to the knee while externally rotating the foot and passively extending the knee. The so-called McMurray test results in a palpable snap. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A, answering bursitis, B, anterior cruciate ligament tear, C, meniscal tear, or D, patellofemoral pain syndrome. I'll give you a moment to contemplate the answer. So the answer here is C. This patient has a meniscal tear. Uh, This patient's history is suspicious for a meniscal tear. Um, Patients typically describe a twisting injury with the foot in a weight-bearing position in which a popping or tearing sensation is often felt, followed by severe pain. Um, uh, Swelling usually occurs over several hours in contrast to ligamentous injuries in which the swelling is immediate. So this is a particularly key point in this question, again, that the swelling occurs. occurred over several hours after the patient injured her knee. Patients with meniscal tears may report a clicking or locking of the knee secondary to loose cartilage in the knee, but often have pain only on walking, particularly going up or down stairs. Although no clinical maneuver is able to definitively diagnose or exclude a meniscal tear, pain along the joint line is 76% sensitive for a meniscal tear, and an audible pop or SNAP on the McMurray test is 97% specific for such a tear. So remember with specificity, if it's highly specific, it helps you rule in a disease. If it's a very specific test that is so-called SPIN. A specific test that is positive helps you rule in the disease. So S-P-P-I-N, SPIN, specific So going over the other wrong answers, um, the uh, choice um, uh, A was answering bursitis. Answering bursitis is characterized by pain and tenderness over the anteromedial aspect of the lower leg below the joint line of the knee. Remember, they described it as being three point centimeters below the joint line in the last question. The location of the patient's pain and her abnormal physical exam findings do not support the diagnosis of anserine bursitis in this case. Uh, Answer B was anterior cruciate ligament or ACL tear. Uh, Ligamentous damage such as an anterior cruciate ligament tear usually occurs as a result of forceful stress or direct blows to the knee while the extremity is bearing weight. Excessive medial rotation with a planted foot stresses the anterior cruciate ligament. A popping or tearing sensation is frequently reported in patients with ligamentous damage. And remember again, it usually causes swelling immediately, not over the next several hours. This patient's physical examination findings, particularly the result of the McMurray test, support a diagnosis of meniscal rather than ligamentous injury. And finally, I probably don't need to say this, but answer D, patellofemoral pain syndrome, the most common cause of knee pain in patients younger than the age of 45 and more common in women than men, uh, is the most common cause of chronic knee pain in active adults, particularly younger uh, women younger than age 45 years, which I just said the exacerbation of the pain by going down steps and the development of knee stiffness and pain at rest when the knee is flexed for an extended period of time are clues to the diagnosis reproducing the pain by firmly moving the patella along the femur confirms the diagnosis this patient's history and physical examination findings are consistent with acute injury to the meniscus rather than the patellofemoral femoral pain syndrome So the key point in this question is that pain along the joint line is seventy six percent sensitive for meniscal tear and an audible pop or snap on the mcmurray's test is ninety seven percent specific for such a tear now i know you want me to review again what the mcmurray test is so i will the mcmurray test is where you take the leg and you want to maximally flex the hip and the knee and apply abduction which is valgus force to the knee while externally rotating the foot and passively extending the knee. Sounds like it hurts, huh? But if it results in a palpable snap or a pop, that's consistent with a meniscal tear. And again, it's 97% specific for such a tear. So when present, it is uh, highly specific. And that concludes these first five questions of Rheumatology Section 11 for Internal Medicine Essentials. I'm going to be doing these in batches of five questions, and I should be done by the year 2022 with this entire book.